please turn with me to uh, Amos, Prophecy of Amos in chapter 5. I'm actually resuming a series I began some time ago at College Chapel when the fourth years, the present fourth years were in first year. So it is <laughs> some time ago, so I better give you a little bit of context. Amos was a, a southerner who was preaching or began preaching in the 8th century B.C., a time of political stability, a time of economic prosperity for both the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Not quite sure what brought Amos north, whether it was business or God's direct call. In any case, when he looked around him and saw what was going on in the north, he began prophetic ministry. And his message was not exactly good news. So let's uh, pick up the message of the Lord through Amos in chapter 5 and verse 1. Hear this word, O house of Israel, this lament I take up concerning you. Fallen is virgin Israel, never to rise again, deserted in her own land with no one to lift her up. This is what the sovereign Lord says. The city that marches out a thousand strong for Israel will have only a hundred left. The town that marches out a hundred strong will have only ten left. This is what the Lord says to the house of Israel. Seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel. Do not go to Gilgal. Do not journey to Beersheba. For Gilgal will surely go into exile and Bethel will be reduced to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, or he will sweep through the house of Joseph like a fire. It will devour, and Bethel will have no one to quench it. You who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. He who made the Pleiades and Orion, who turns blackness into dawn and darkens day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land. The Lord is his name. He flashes destruction on the stronghold and brings the fortified city to ruin. You hate the one who reproves in court and despise him who who tells the truth. You trample on the poor and force them to give you grain. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins. You oppress the righteous and take bribes. And you deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Therefore the prudent man keeps quiet in such times. For the times are evil. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you just as you say he is. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will give mercy on the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, this is what the Lord Lord God Almighty says. There will be wailing in all the streets and cries of anguish in every public square. The farmers will be summoned to weep and the mourners to wail. There will be wailing in all the vineyards, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. Imagine being late for your own funeral. 
It's a scenario I'm sure we've all heard of, but none of us have ever experienced it, at least not personally, I hope. The saying, of course, refers to someone who is always running behind schedule, someone who inevitably arrives late for appointments or events. Ah, you'll be late for your own funeral, we say, in mild exasperation. That's not really possible, is it? How can anyone possibly be late for their own funeral? Short of a mechanical breakdown in the hearse, or being as unfortunate as poor Mr. Bean, it really doesn't seem likely, does it? But there's a sense in which this was the problem that ancient Israel faced, according to what Amos says here in chapter 5. The wake, as it were, had already commenced. The morning had already begun, or at least it should have, because Israel's demise, the political death of this nation, had been sealed. This is a people headed for disaster. This is a community for whom the bell tolls. Thus Amos begins his address with a personal lament in verse 2. And he concludes this funeral lament for the living dead, as Andrew Sheed has called it. Amos concludes this very sober oracle with a prediction of widespread mourning following coming disaster. Israel may be coming to the party late, but coming they most certainly are. For it's their wake, it's their funeral that Amos holds before us here. Fallen is virgin Israel, never to rise again. Deserted in her own land with no one to lift her up. It's a bleak picture indeed. Israel's doomed without any hope of deliverance, with no prospect of restoration. I recall as a student going through those second year blues, feeling utterly overwhelmed by the workload, absolutely convinced there was no way that I could carry on. I'm finished, I announced one day to my roommate. And with all the pastoral sensitivity that he could muster, he looked at me sincerely and told me to go and catch myself on. He was right, of course. I simply needed to get things back into perspective, to lean on God rather than myself to see me through. I wasn't really finished at all. That's not the case with Israel. Israel's future here was very bleak indeed. The population was about to be decimated, verse 3. This is what the sovereign Lord says, the city that marches out a thousand strong for Israel will have only a hundred left. The town that marches out a hundred strong will have only ten left. Bitter wailing, anguish crying, that's what lay in store for these people, verses 16 and 17. This is what the Lord, the Lord God Almighty says, they'll be wailing in all the streets and cries of anguish in every public square. The farmers will be summoned to weep, and the mourners to wail. They'll be wailing in all the vineyards, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. Possibly alluding to that fateful night back in Egypt, the Lord's destructive power is now targeted on his own people, on Israel. God has lined up Israel in his sights, and thus Israel is surely doomed. Well, that's essentially the message that Amos delivers here. So you may well be thinking, how does this relate to me? What does this message of doom and gloom have to say to a Christian audience? 
more especially, what should we as teachers and leaders glean from this message? Well, to answer that question, we need to fill in some of the details. We need to look at how Amos explains and unpacks, and I use that word guardedly after last night, unpacks Israel's inevitable demise here. According to what he says in verses 5 to 16, two major factors led to Israel's downfall. The first was what we might call a case of spiritual myopia, and the second was a, a matter of ethical indifference. Let's consider each in turn, beginning with the problem of spiritual myopia. It's clear from what Amos says in these verses that the Israelites were spiritually short-sighted. They could only see what was immediately before them, their sacred sites, their religious paraphernalia, their military might, their fortifications, all of which they saw as evidence that God was with them. It's clear from verse 14 that they were absolutely confident about this fact, that God and they were in a right relationship. And yet they were clearly blinded to the spiritual realities of the situation. Instead of frequenting their secret sites, these people needed to return to their holy God. This is what the Lord says to Israel, verse 4, Seek me and live. Seek me and live. Don't seek Bethel. Don't go to Gilgal. Don't journey to Beersheba. Now, of course, these were the very places the Israelites might expect to go and meet with God. That's what they went there for, to meet with God. Bethel, the house of God, historically a place of divine revelation, presently the location of one of Israel's most sacred holy places. Gilgal, where the disgrace of Israel's uncircumcised generation had been ruled away. A major cultic site in the days of Samuel, and obviously since then. And Beersheba's sacred status could be traced right back to the days of Abraham. It too appears to have become a place of regular pilgrimage for these northerners. So I suppose this is like a visiting preacher coming to college and telling us, don't go to chapel, and don't go to your church, and don't think of going to the Katoomba Conference. (laughs) That helps us appreciate just how shocking this must have been. Through Amos, the Lord declares, don't go to any of these places of worship. Rather, seek me. Seek the Lord if you want to live. Of course, we know that some of these places were more than a little bit sus. And I don't mean college chapel. (laughs) I mean the places that Amos refers to here. But let's not think for one second that that lets us off the hook. You see, the problem that Amos is addressing at this point It's not the fact that some of these places were somewhat unorthodox. No, the problem he's addressing here is that these places had become a kind of substitute for God himself. The people were going to these places and placing their confidence in what they did at these places rather than genuinely seeking God and placing their hope and confidence in him. Their focus was in the places associated with God rather than God himself. They had clearly lost sight of the one, verse 8, who had made the Pleiades and Orion, who turns midnight into dawn and darkens day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them over the face of the land. The Lord is his name. This is not intended here as a veiled threat. That comes with the next verse. 
Here the point is simply that the God they worship is no mere localized or astral deity. Rather, he's the cosmic God who controls the sky and the sea. He's the maker and the governor of the heavenly bodies. Thus, he's the one who controls days and seasons. The one who commands the oceans, who sends the rain. In other words, he's not the kind of deity that they can manipulate or placate with their religious activity. This is the God of the universe. The one through whom they live and move and have their very existence. And therefore, he's the one that they must seek. For he's the one on whom their future absolutely depends. Get your eyes off your religious paraphernalia, says Amos, and get them onto God. Seek the Lord so that you might live. The things they were looking to were really no help at all. Gilgal, verse 5, will surely go into exile and Bethel will, become, will be reduced to nothing. There's an interesting play on words here that's hard to capture in English. Roll away will be removed away. Your daddy's house will be destroyed. That's the best I can do. But you can easily grasp the point. These sanctuaries would prove useless and futile to save Israel on the, the day of disaster, the disaster of exile. And the same was true of their military muscle and their, their physical fortifications. Their army, verse 3, would be decimated by the consuming fire of God's wrath, verse 6. The God who controls the cosmos would turn their little fortresses into rubble. Verse 9, with a blinding flash, he destroys the stronghold and brings the fortified city to ruin. And while their fancy houses and their well-stocked wine cellars, they would fare no better. All these things that the Israelites presently were putting stock in that proved useless, that proved futile in the face of God's coming judgment. Their only hope, their only refuge was God himself. Here was a people who desperately needed to lift their gaze, to get their eyes off the things around them, the spiritual, the material crutches on which they foolishly relied, and to fix their eyes on the one who alone could save. What about us? To whom or to what are we looking? On whom or on what are we relying? Is it really God? Or is it rather those things that we associate with God and the blessings of God? Are we really relying on God or is it more a matter of ourselves, our religious devotion, our own resources? The problem of spiritual myopia, that's the first factor that contributed to Israel's dire situation here. The second is the problem of ethical indifference. And what I mean by that is the fact that Israel's leadership was paying little or no attention to God's ethical norms, treating obedience as a kind of optional extra. In particular, they were paying no concern for God's concern for justice and righteousness. These two things were clearly in short supply. Verse 7, there are those who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. Most likely the offenders here were the priests or other officials at Bethel. Another good reason for not going there for help. In any case, God's concern for justice is being ignored. Indeed, his demands for justice are being twisted and perverted, turned into something distasteful and unpleasant. 
God's righteous standards were being treated like dirt. Not surprisingly, a fair go was certainly not the hallmark of this society. Abuse and exploitation had become the order of the day. And anyone out of step with this agenda was met with contempt. There are those, verse 10, who hate the one who upholds justice in court and detest the one who tells the truth. See, the poor were being fleeced, verse 11, so that the rich could finance their extravagant lifestyles, their fancy sandstone houses, their fine chardonnays. The judicial system is utterly corrupt, verse 12. There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Now surely we think, surely someone's prepared to stand up and challenge this awful behavior. But clearly this was not a time for the faint-hearted. And the culture of hostility towards the just and the good, honesty gets suppressed. Dissent is simply not tolerated. And so verse 13, the prudent keep quiet in such times, for the times are evil. Our own society here in Australia prides itself in its multiculturalism, in its inclusiveness, in its tolerance. But it's not really that different when we scratch beneath the surface, is it? We see just how intolerant modernity can be when its ideals and social agenda gets challenged. Those with ethical scruples are vilified. Everything possible is done to silence them. And of course, it's tempting, is it not? It's tempting to succumb, to yield to such pressure, to to let the voice of conscience be muted in this way. And yet we mustn't let this happen. For as Israel here learned to its cost, evil does indeed triumph when good men do nothing. Here they were, a society that had lost its moral compass, a people for whom might was right, a culture where the weak and vulnerable simply got trodden on and the perpetrators pursued their selfish and immoral agenda with impunity. And yet this was not a situation that God would allow to continue unchecked. While people may have been turning a blind eye, God wasn't. I know how many are your offenses, he says, and how great your sins. And God is about to take action, as we've already seen. And so Amos urges his audience to repent, verse 14. Seek good, not evil, that you might live. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Repent. A nation may be doomed, but there's still a modicum of hope, at least for some. Perhaps, verse 15, perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. Amos doesn't presume here on God's grace, and clearly neither should his hearers. Even this hope that he offers doesn't remove the grim reality ahead. The sins of these people will be dealt with. Israel will not escape God's judgment. However, a remnant, a remnant just might be saved through it. And of course, this is precisely what did take place, not only with respect to the judgment that fell on Israel a few decades later, but also, and more importantly, with the ultimate judgment, that to which Israel's death and exile looks forward and foreshadows. Consequently, as God's people in the 21st century, the situation is not nearly so bleak for us as it was for ancient Israel. Our sins, which are just as serious, have been atoned for. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. 
In my youth fellowship days, we had a song that put it like this. I was tempted to sing it, especially after something somebody said yesterday, but I'm not. My wife warned me, don't sing it, just say it. <laughs> anyway, here's what it says. Safe am I, safe am I. I nearly burst into song there. <laughs> In the hollow of his hand, shelter door, shelter door, with his love forevermore. No ill can harm me. No foe alarm me, for he keeps both day and night. Safe am I, safe am I, in the hollow of his hand. That's gloriously true. But while that's gloriously true, let's not presume upon God's grace. We can't any more than these people could. After all, the New Testament is replete with warnings about doing so. It puts considerable stress on the necessity of persevering in faith and good works. Paul, for example, speaks of the gospel through which you are being saved if if you hold on to it. He also expected converts to manifest the fruit of the Spirit, to lead a life worthy of the Lord, and to produce a harvest of righteousness in their lives. Brothers and sisters, we must not ignore those New Testament calls to self-scrutiny and those caveats that we find in Paul's letters. Provided that That hope of eternal salvation is ours, provided that. Let's not ignore those caveats. And we must surely heed the warnings of Hebrews, perhaps the most sobering of all. There we're told explicitly, if we keep on sinning, after we've received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Friends, those are sobering words, strong words, warning words that every Christian must take seriously. But what if I don't? Perhaps you're sitting there asking. What if I don't? Well, I guess the author of Hebrews would concur with Amos. And I think Amos' response would be this. My dear friend, it's your funeral. Let's pray. Gracious God, having heard your word through Amos this morning, help us as your people not to be like ancient Israel. Help us not to harden our hearts, but help us to repent. Help us not to rely on ourselves, but to rely totally and completely on you. Lord, help us to live lives worthy of our heavenly calling in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.